Hello to all, and welcome to the fourth episode of Dorkfest, the podcast. We hope everyone out there is continuing to stay safe and healthy. I'm Grand Moff Gabe Freemuth, and here in our secret volcano lair are the rest of the esteemed dorks, starting with the evil ruler of Latveria, Dr. Dan Freemuth. Dan, how are you doing today? I am doing excellent. Thank you so much for welcoming me into the secret hideout. Well, why have a secret hideout if you can't share it with all your <laughs> evil buddies? With us also, are, of course, our number one dork, number two, Josh Freemuth. Josh, how's things? Good, so long as I'm the Robert Wagner version and not the Rob Lowe version. You don't want to be the Rob Lowe? You literally could not want to be the Rob Lowe version less? Preferably. Preferably. You can be Robert Wagner to suit you. I like it. Uh, and last but not least, and he's coming in and out as I'm looking at him. He's cloaked, I think, uh, the Romulan commander, Jordan Freemuth. And uh, Jordan, if you could actually stay uncloaked for the purposes of our conversation here, that would just help the rest of us. You don't get to tell me what to do. But no, uh, looking forward to talking about, you know, all the different realities in which we could have, may have, and perhaps still are friends. <laughs> Uh, for our episode today, everybody, we're going to cut right to the heart of what makes some of our favorite franchises tick. The villains, the bad guys we love to hate, uh, the ones who are just too cool not to love or too striking to ignore. I think we can all agree that a good villain is as, if not more important than a good hero. And often heroes are made better characters as they struggle with their foes. There's a lot to talk about here, and we'll get into all that fun stuff as we go through our uh, one, two, and three-point questions. Make sure uh, before we dive into the episode, just a quick reminder to follow us on Instagram at dorkfest underscore podcast, and please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy podcasts. Uh, for our warm-up question today, we've got a good, uh, we got a good one to start, start breathing hard as we uh, get into the real workouts of, of dorkdom. So to start us off real quick, a bit of working backwards, guys, and we're going to start with Jordan on this one. What heroes would have made the best villains? So when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking sort of in two areas i was thinking in terms of look you know what sort of hero or you know character within the hero realm has a look that could translate into a villain but then also i was thinking like who reasonably with just a few pushes in the wrong direction could actually become a villain and i'm gonna go with a slightly more obscure a uh, villain, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go into the X Men fra franchise. I'm gonna say one of the coolest heroes made into villains would have been Gambit from the X Men series. Just feel like he has the the look of a villain, but also there's a little bit of a, scra a scoundrel nature to him that could play well as a villain. Great pick, Mon Ami. Scoundrel, I like mm. the sound of that. No, no, that's uh, and it's interesting you uh, say that, Jordan. Gambit on occasion has uh, has taken on the villain role. He's become one of the four horsemen of Apocalypse as he's come around. I think he spent some time as War and uh, some of the other ones. It's uh, no Gambit's a, a great choice for that. Very nice, Dan. What have you got? I am not going to be nearly as obscure as Jordan, and I am going to riff off something that I think we're probably going to end up talking a fair bit about throughout the course of this podcast, and that is effective villains who are close to the heroes. I'm going to say James Bond would make a hell of a villain. Think about the sort of chaos and havoc that he could wreak on MI6. We'll talk about Alec Trevelyan, but the knowledge that he has at his disposal as it relates to British Secret Service, but also physical combat, the skills, the gadgets at his disposal, and 
to Jordan's point about maybe just to push in the wrong direction, think about orphan James Bond not being pushed towards MI6, but possibly being pushed to Spectre. Could have made for a pretty darn good villain, I think. That's a great, uh, and I, you know, I started thinking along uh, similar lines, actually. Bond is an absolutely devastating pick for, for the world of light if he were to fall to the dark side. He uh, would have been as terrifying as any of the supervillains he faced down. Uh, and in a similar light, yeah, I, um, there are two things immediately came to mind, and I kind of invalidated them because, as uh, Jordan kind of illustrated, uh, stories have been made out of some of these uh, ones. I was thinking, my first thought was Batman. You put that, you know, all that preparation, study, cunning, know-how, strategy, and prowess in all things that humans can achieve uh, with, again, uh, a little push toward madness is all it takes. And uh, as illustrated in a number of comic storylines, most recently, uh, a villain called the Batman Who Laughs, which is quite literally a dark reflection of Batman that's come out uh, largely through writer Scott Snyder and, among others, a talented artist, Greg Capullo, um, and Superman, by the other by the other thing, a wrong, you know, uh, there's a... a graphic novel called Superman Red Sun that shows Superman landing in 1938 in the Soviet Union. He grows up communist. That's an interesting take on things. But really, if I was going to think of, you know, who would really be somebody devastating, I was thinking about Rey. What happens if the last Jedi does fall and take the, the Luke's, you know, what was threatened for Luke Skywalker route? We do see Dark Rey come about. Does Kylo Ren even stand a chance then? I, I think Rey would be a pretty devastating villain if she would have fallen toward the dark. And then finally, uh, to round us out, Josh, tell us who your nominee is for best hero turn villain. So I'm going to go a little bit off the board here with my pick, a category we don't normally go down. I'm going to select Peter Pan. I just think like he's got some powers, all right? Perpetual youth and flight are certainly cool powers. And I just kind of think it's a fun, interesting concept to think of a angsty prepubescent teenager with this gang of lost boys wreaking havoc on early 19th century London. I just think it sounds like a fun idea. I'm going Peter Pan. Boy, if we had points in this bonus section for this episode, you would get all of them. That is such a great choice. I love that, Josh. But we're doing things a little differently this time, so sorry. I, I take points where I can get them honorary and otherwise. You get the bragging rights. You get all the bragging rights from the warm-up question. Good enough. Worth their weight in gold. So, yeah, boy, nice, nicely done, guys, and a great way to, to ease us into this. And through to now, we've covered stars, Trek, and Wars, singling out excellent episodes and characters, celebrating all things from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This week, you're going to hear us dork out in a more general fashion. We're going to focus on a crucial part of any good story and talk about some of our favorite bad guys and villains from across a range of our most beloved franchises. And we will start our first one-point question by talking about the villains we love. Dan? Can you start us out among all our franchise villains or one-offs or just notable bad dudes or dudettes? Who you got? So I think it's important to note right from the get-go, you mentioned we're talking from our beloved franchises. So we are not necessarily going to be delving into some of cinema's cruelest villains necessarily. The Shining will not very likely be reflected here. Hannibal Lecter is not a name that's going to come up in the course of this conversation. Norman Bates is, not, you know, we're, we're not going to be going down that road. We're going to be focusing in on the things that we like to dork out about. And as it relates to villains, we could dork out 
for a heck of a lot longer than our usual hour-long podcast, if given the latitude here. But I think when we look at villains, first of all, and we focus in on the franchises that we love, you have to start, let's go back to our most recent episode in Star Wars. And of course, one of the all-time villains there, Darth Vader, but it doesn't end there. You've got Emperor Palpatine. You've got Captain Phasma in some of the, the more recent uh, part of the more recent trilogy. And then you've got the next level. You've got the Boba Fetts. You've got the Bounty Hunters. You've got the Stormtroopers. Now all of a sudden you've got Sand Troopers and Snow Troopers and TIE Fighter Pilots and all these different characters that come out of Star Wars and fall into the villain realm. Then we go into Star Trek. We spent quite a bit of time there. And Star Trek has never really had, I think outside of Khan, Star Trek hasn't had the, the big bad in the way that Star Wars has had Darth Vader. That does not mean they have not had a tremendous villains. I mean, Khan is an all-timer, and we saw why he was worth bringing back from the TV series into the movies. But Star Trek has also done a great job, whether they're Klingons, Romulans, Cardassians, the Borg, tremendous villains. Star Trek has really been able to span that species genre of villains. And then, I mean, let's, let's get off some of the franchises we spent a lot of time talking about in earlier podcasts. Let's start thinking about James Bond, the likes of Art Goldfinger or Silva, or we get into Batman. I mean, is there a better villain than the Joker? And then if we expand beyond the Batman films and we get into the TV series, Batman the Animated Series, the Riddler, Scarecrow, Mr. Freeze. I mean, I know I'm, I'm preaching to Gabe's choir right now for sure, but I think the bottom line is, you know, for each of these series, there's only a handful of hero characters, right? Batman has Batman. Star Trek has its main crew, which yes, maybe six or seven characters, but within that, think of all the different villains that we get to experience. And it's interesting when you look at that palette, it's so much more expansive, I think, than just the hero palette because we're focused in on one or two or three heroes who have to combat all these different villains week after week after week or movie after movie after movie. And so that gives us a lot of really memorable villains that we're going to talk about. I think, unfortunately, it does lead itself to presenting us with a handful, maybe more than a handful, of missed opportunities on the villain front as well. So, Dan, you named so many great categories there. I'm just going to single out a couple of names that I wrote down that you missed in those categories. In Batman the Animated Series, Mr. Freeze is an unbelievably cool villain in in that one. Um, the Clock King is one that I've always loved from that series. And that, that series does a really good job with Catwoman and Selena Kyle, too. In James Bond, Dan, you were talking about what if James Bond was a bad guy. Well, then you pretty much have Red Grant, who is a terrific bad guy from, from Russia with Love uh, in that muscle category. Odd job is terrific. And, and I, I watched Thunderball not too long ago, and I was struck by Fiona Volpe, who is almost bonds equal in every way like using the seduction to to get 
to, to capture Bond and like he thinks he's seducing her, but actually she's seducing him. And then it takes a pretty miraculous escape for Bond to actually get away. I, I think she's a terrific villain there. And a category which Jordan brought up initially, X-Men, I think has one of my favorite villains of all time, and that is Magneto. You know, so many of these villains have multiple incarnations and we like some more than we like others. I said how much I like Mr. Freeze. Well, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mr. Freeze is an abomination. Terrible. But from the animated series to Ian McKellen to Michael Fassbender, Magneto has been terrific throughout multiple incarnations. The Joker was mentioned too, and that's another somebody who has had multiple True. portrayals yeah. across yeah, decades at this point. Jordy, what do you, uh, what do you got on the villain front? I wanted to go back to something that Dan was talking about in terms of Star Trek, because Dan, I think you made a good point of, you know, talking about how, you know, really in terms of Star Trek, in terms of like the one-off villains that you have, Khan is at the top of that list. And I think that Star Trek has frankly been a little bit unsuccessful in terms of creating other villains like that. I think one of the ones, you know, one of the ones that you can bring up that might be close to it is the Borg Queen was you know not by not by any stretch of the imagination a a poor incarnation of a villain and, and i think ter- in terms of star trek too the other thing that you have is that you have a variety of types of villains like if you think about um star trek the next generation you have q who might not necessarily fall into that like villain category but he certainly falls into the antag the antagonist category and and i think another thing that we're going to talk about a little bit later on in the pod uh, in terms of like the the foil villain Q, I feel like, is very much the the foil to Picard, similar to another quote-unquote villain in Star Trek, where, you know, I think in some ways Harry Mudd from the original series is a bit of a foil to James T. Kirk. But, Dan, just to echo something that you said earlier, I, I do think that where Star Trek really hits the home run is in terms of the collective villains. Probably none better than the Borg, but you also have the Romulans. You have the Klingons. And the way that they sort of played with those different types of villains as you went from one series to the next, I think, is especially impressive, too. So, Jordy, I just kind of want to piggyback off the what I thought was a really good point that you made about Q. And that introduces, I think, the idea of a different kind of villain, the villain we love to hate. That's a notion that Gabe brought in to this conversation right from the get-go. And, and Q is the perfect example of that in Star Trek because he's not so much a villain as he is an obstacle, right? He's, he's a hurdle that the crew has to sort of get over or he's a roadblock that the Enterprise has to maneuver around. But you get the sense that in his essence, he's not really a bad guy. He just understands the universe differently than Picard and company. But that villain that you love to hate made me think of another character and subsequently another franchise we have not yet gone to. And I'm just going to basically set this on a tee and let Gabe hit a 300-yard drive right down the middle of the fairway. That villain we love to hate from the Marvel Cinematic Universe is Loki, who was introduced in Thor but really shines in the Avengers movie. He's one that has his story arc shift like Kylo Ren toward the good at the end, but I think he's as good a villain, quote unquote villain, as Marvel has accomplished. I think they've had their hits and misses on the villain front as well. But you think about Thanos, you think about Killmonger, 
even Gila portrayed by Kate Blanchett, I thought was a fun, I mean, just an over the top villain, but she embraced it. Uh, but Loki for me, as it relates to Marvel villains, particularly those villains we love to hate, just knocked it out of the park. Completely the case. Um, Marvel had an early home run and a needed one with a villain in Loki, especially one that came out of arguably their weakest franchise at the time in Thor. The dynamic between Thor and Loki, between Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston has always been great. That brotherly rivalry, the the adoptive siblings, you know, unknown past whole thing. And then just Loki as the trickster god, just sort of wanting to stir up trouble, you know, and the, he becomes their first major cinematic villain. And yeah, his arc really does complete itself very nicely through Ragnarok and now into his own Netflix series. And one thing I do uh, want to bring up, um, I think it's interesting too, sometimes the villains are kind of a reflection of the form of where we're seeing these stories. I think part of the reason Star Trek, with a few notable exceptions, as mentioned, uh, hasn't had as many epic quote-unquote villains is sort of the nature that a lot of it has been episodic, been on TV. Um, and it's usually you end up with a villain of the week. What are the Klingons doing this time? What are the Romulans doing this time? With somebody like Q, you can repeat that, but Q never made the jump to the big screen because you're looking at a more generalized audience there. What did? Khan, which is driven by an excellent performance by Ricardo Montalban, which I think is another aspect of why we like some of these people. The performances that go into these villains, um, whether it's Red Grant, whether it's Kila, whether it's uh, you know Darth Vader in both body and voice, a lot of life gets imbued through that. And, and to that point, Star Wars then, because its canvas is so much larger, its villains, I think, get drawn suitably you know, to a commensurate size. Now, I am not a big Marvel guy, but in the last few weeks, I've tried to do a bit of catching up and done some homework. And Dan, you mentioned Killmonger, and that was one of the first Marvel movies that I watched was Black Panther. And Kill, what I thought Killmonger did a great job of is this thing that sometimes happens with villains. I, I call it the dog who caught the car syndrome. So many times villains in, in TV and movies, they get the thing that they're after and then they have no plan after that. Killmonger defeats uh, the Black Panther, becomes the king, and immediately has a plan and immediately starts executing it. I thought that was a really cool part of that movie that they didn't fall into that trap. They took a great deal of care with Killmonger. Um, I think that's probably one of the better scripts overall that Marvel has written, too, just in terms of how they... I mean, it's an incredible cast. Let's and you mentioned, yeah, that. the performance by Michael yeah. B. Jordan is, yeah. is tremendous, too. He's incredible in that. I mean, his ending line, his final line, is one of the most devastating it's, things. Uh, it's a gut punch. Yeah, oh, it's, man. It's an incredible... And, and he embodies... That's the thing. Killmonger is very nearly right. That's a compelling thing about Killmonger. He's going about it in entirely the wrong way. He's fueled by... Vengeance and hate, you know, that can that goes the way for a lot of villains, you know, that that one wrong push. And even T'Challa comes to see that their destinies could have been completely different had, you know, and they inherit some generational trauma as well from the actions of their fathers and all that. But that is absolutely what makes Killmonger a compelling villain. And I think, you know, tracks with some of Marvel's better villains is the motivation is clear and they and they know what they want to do. Thanos was the same way, really. He had a plan and boy, did he enact that. Spoiler alert for anybody who hadn't seen, you know, these things for the last couple of years, but they, they were everywhere. A lot of these, and it's not true of all Marvel villains. Typically Marvel, I think, has had a problem with villains that aren't just a reflect, you know, the hero, but bad. You know, the same power set, the same abilities, but, you know, just twisted. I agree, Killmonger is just a, a heck of a, of a character. G Gabe, that... that same powers but opposite in marvel was one thing i noticed when i was watching the avengers my kids have been watching a lot of pokemon recently oh. and some of those battles really felt like 
Pokemon battles to me where it was like, Iron Man, I choose you. Use blaster power. And then <laughs> Loki, use your whatever that magic wand was power. And they have all these great moves and nobody gets really that hurt. <laughs> the great thing about energy blast, sad. it's like an undefined, like, oh, it's like you got punched with light. You're fine, though. You're fine. Actually, Pokemon is kind of an interestingly weird example here because nothing is ever, like, the, biggest, the closest thing to villains there are the immortal Team Rocket. They're fantastic. I, I asked but, I asked my son at, at dinner what villain he wanted me to mention, and he, he wanted me to mention Team Rocket, and my daughter said Mayor Humdinger for you Paw Patrol fans out there. Very nice. Very nice. I can't speak to Mayor Humdinger. He's a real piece of work. He's a, let, let me tell you. And I just want to do a quick shout-out elsewhere in the world of comedy and animation montgomery burns from the simpsons i think is a terrific villain and newman from seinfeld you know in that love to hate agent of chaos sort of way i wanted to mention those two real quick well and actually the um speaking of the dog chasing cars thing that's a direct quote from heath ledger's joker in um in the dark knight that he calls himself he's like a dog chasing cars he wouldn't know what to do if he caught up with one and you know he goes on to very famously say that he or as michael Caine famously states he just wants to watch the world burn so, Josh, you were talking about the um, sort of like moral inverse that the Marvel Universe brings up. And that just made me think of one other character, again, sort of being the uh, literary representative of the group. I wanted to bring this example up, although we've seen some great film or rather TV examples of this, too. I think probably one of the best examples of this like foil or moral inverse character is Professor Moriarty in the Sherlock series, you have like this character who is very much just sort of the evil version of Sherlock who can literally match wits with the character clue by clue, case by case. I think it's, it, it's just interesting to think about how so much of the difference in characters comes down to, you know, just these sort of like minor differences in motivation. That's great, Jordy. I mean, as far as the classic protagonist antagonist relationship goes, it doesn't get much more you know classic in a lot of ways than than that that's an interesting relationship antagonist doesn't always necessarily mean villain it's the thing that our hero struggles against it's it's often a villain it could be a foe it could be a dark reflection you know if you're Dwayne Johnson you might be fighting a tsunami or something you know that's uh, it, it could be a, a state of mind you know the villain was inside us all along so really uh, I, I, I touched on earlier some of the reasons these villains are sticking with us are you know occasionally the performances they're you know they're very well just put together from script to you know screen in the end and there's a lot that goes into making a villain memorable um, and I think we should spend a little bit of the time uh, or a lot of bit of time talking about what it is that makes these villains stick with us. Jordan I want you to start us off again what is it that makes a villain memorable and yeah uh, you know what before we move on I want to dole out the point for our first question and I'm going to give it to, uh, to Daniel for that eloquent introduction uh, into our topic here, setting us off on all the right points. That was a solid rundown of getting us into our villainry. I listed things. Yes. Point for me. I'll take I, it. I think it was because you suggested that Gabe could hit a 300-yard drive down the middle of a fairway, which we all know is not possible. I've seen him do it one time, but it, boy, that memory is rock solid up there. Pity I can't do it again. Again, I think Dan's just kind of getting points for what the rest of us did. Like, he it's, just kind of set us up on a tee. We was, then, we then first. proceeded to hit the drive. It's more pity points. It's just yeah, sticking yeah. with the theme of the show that I get pity points. Gabe, you, you keep know, those pity points coming. 
And you got and, it. And you know, when you guys are are moderator, you can you can give points out how you want. But I'm gonna give them out how I'm gonna give them out right now. So uh, you can get up off my back about it. You know, to start us off on our two point question, I kind of want to go back to something that Gabe brought up towards the end of our last discussion. You know, Gabe, you were talking about how antagonists don't necessarily fall right in line with the quote-unquote villain category. But I do think it's sort of helpful to think about the, the tenets or the characteristics of effective villains and then sort of thinking about how our villains or the villains that we love so much, how they match up with those or how they might not match up with those. So while we were researching for this, I did find this article online. Uh, it was from the New York book editors. I, and it was an article that one of their editors wrote about the, the guide to writing a convincing villain. And a couple of things that they pointed out that I thought were really interesting. And I, and I thought I saw a lot of overlap in terms of you know, a lot of the villains that we've talked about already and some that we'll start talking about now was that a convincing, vil a convincing villain will have motivations that the reader can understand. And then they'll also have like moments of relatability. And Dan, I think that ties into something that you were talking about. You know, the best villains are the villains that you not only love to hate, but you also hate to love. You have that like interesting you know, situation. This is something that I saw directly in this article. They talked about how like, these are the, are, these are the villains that you feel bad for and then you feel bad about the fact that you felt bad for them because they're bad. And it just creates this sort of like emotional roller coaster that you go through. And some of the ways that this article talked about creating villains like that was that, you know, they talked about the, some of the arches or some of the narratives that these, these villains will have. And, you know, they have sort of their own motivations within there. But then, you know, they're also, you know, they're also going to do things based on sort of their own moral code. This makes me think of a franchise, one of my favorite franchises of all time and one that I'm not sure my fellow dorks are too up to date with and that's HBO's The Wire. You know there's a famous character in there by the name of Omar Little and one of the most famous lines that he has is this idea of like everyone has a code, everyone operates on a code and villains I think are in the same way and especially if you have a villain that operates within that sort of motivational code that you can understand it makes them relatable it makes them you, you strive to understand them. you're not just striving to hate them you're striving to understand what it is that makes them tick omar coming i, I i'm actually i want to just curious would you call omar a villain no i don't think i, I well, see and again this is where i think where it gets a little bit difficult in terms of like villain versus antagonist yeah. versus like because i would probably not I think that Omar Little is probably most like Baltimore's version of Robin Hood. Um, I got you, yeah. But I, he might fall under sort of like an anti-hero sort of role. But at the same time, though, he does things that are like in some ways morally reprehensible. At the same time, though, part of his code is that he doesn't curse. In the entire series, he does not once curse. And this is a person who is, he's someone that robs drug dealers. And I think, you know, villains like that are so engaging because they are, they're, they're so human. A wonderful stuff, Jordan. No, I think that's some great stuff. And who doesn't love The Wire? Although I myself watched that show a little too late. I've seen it now, though. It's great. Uh, Josh, what say you? Um, that's, your, that's your backyard, Gabe. That, that, really should be, that really should be your account. I know. Well, it only recently became... <laughs> Mine, I, but, I suppose uh, I suppose Jordan one of the things you were talking about was was the necessity for a villain to have an arc and that was something that I was thinking about in determining what makes a good person good villain versus a bad villain and and it's kind of a question I wanted to pose to you guys because I couldn't really figure out where I landed does a redemption arc 
as we see a lot in Star Wars, does that make a, a villain better or worse? Like, I think it certainly makes them more complex, but then less evil in, in the end. So it was just, just a, something I couldn't quite, couldn't quite come to a firm conclusion on. I think it's a good question, Josh, especially in terms of Star Wars. And my first inclination comes to execution. You know, I think about what you saw happen to Anakin in the prequels in his sort of development up to becoming Darth Vader. And I guess this might be partially execution and partially writing. For Anakin to become this sort of villain that we are loving to hate and hating to love, his struggles would need to be something that we can sympathize with. And that's where I feel like the execution of it, at least that one character fell a little bit short because there were so many times in which the struggles that he were, go that he was going through felt at times petty, unsympathetic and self-inflicted. And I couldn't bring myself to really feel that bad for him. I was just becoming annoyed with him. To answer your question, Josh, I feel like that's an example where the, I guess, arc in the opposite way made him a less effective villain but I don't think that was necessarily the fault of the arc so much of how it was executed. Yeah, I, I happen to think as it relates specifically to Star Wars, which is the example that was brought up, I don't think the redemption of Darth Vader cheapens that villain experience or lessens that, that villain's legacy one bit. I think Darth Vader is one of the greatest movie cinematic villains of all time. And I think that's because of Many reasons, but a lot of what took place in those original three movies, and yes, he has this moment of redemption at the very end, and I think that's sort of the light at the end of the tunnel for him, but it still was a long and very dark tunnel, and I don't think, I don't think getting to the end of that tunnel takes away or cheapens the experience of, of going through it, and I realize that's now, at this point, a, a rather belabored metaphor. What about for Kylo Ren? Because uh, one of the reasons that I love Last Jedi so much is that push-pull of between him and Rey, it's, it's at its most taut, you know, where, where you are really, really pulling for him to, to turn to the light. And then at the end of Rise of Skywalker, when he finally does, uh, again, maybe, Jordan, that's where your point about execution comes in. Maybe if it's executed well, it makes the villain better. And I, as I am on record as not the biggest fan of Rise of Skywalker. Spoilers, again, spoilers. Maybe that's why I considered that detracting a little bit from Kylo Ren as an overall villain. I think the problem with that specific example relates to a lot of what we discussed about those two movies in particular, Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker, in our previous podcast, because Ryan Johnson is at the helm for The Last Jedi, and I think they were taking... The impression I get, at least, is that they were taking that Kylo Ren character into a very dark and very different place than J.J. Abrams originally intended at the beginning of Force Awakens and then has to kind of shoehorn together at the end of Rise of Skywalker. So I think that's just maybe some sloppy behind-the-scenes execution there as it relates to that specific example. At least that's just my opinion. I think part of what we're talking about here, too, is in the life of these characters, these moments of their redemption or their downfall, the least interesting thing about Kylo Ren is his redemption at the end of the day. It, it's not something that strengthens him as a character. He has a, some good stuff at the end. He fights back against the bad guy. That's great. And then he's gone. That's the end of his story. 
and more interesting to, to me, and I think this is sort of where Kylo Ren was a very interesting villain up until it was decided that all he wanted was to rule the galaxy is all they did was what made him turn to the dark side in the first place. Cause presumably before this, you know, we saw the Snoke stuff, we knew he was a Vader worshiper. We saw effectively just a scared, confused kid who chose the dark side and kept choosing the dark side. That's interesting stuff. And I think ultimately something like that, it, it sort of cheapens the character. And I think the reverse is almost true of Anakin Skywalker and Vader, where in a sense, the least interesting thing about Vader is how he became Vader, but who he was on both sides of that. I mean, to bring up a lesser example, it's kind of Harvey Dent and Two-Face. They, each of those characters has separate lives. And Anakin Skywalker, the problem is we never really, where I, where I think the downfall of that fails cinematically is we never get a good sense of, Anakin should be this dynamic character. He wants to feel this whole breadth of emotion and the Jedi are telling him, no, you feel this way. No, you feel this way. And he's got two sympathetic people in his life, Padme and Obi-Wan. And he gets paranoid enough where he feels they betrayed him. All the beats are there for Anakin Skywalker. It is here, I think, in the execution. But we also never get to see the, what makes him a hero before he, he becomes really the villain that we know and love him to be. I think what we're talking about here is what makes a good character in a lot of ways. And that happens to then be a villain. Right. And in that article that I was talking about, one like the last line in it actually talked about how I'm actually going to pull it up just to make sure that I get the line right. It said that the best characters, villains included, are complicated and messy. And I think what you're picking up on, Gabe, is that the best villains, it's not necessarily their arc. Their arc may help to do this. But what's most important for these characters is that they are relatable, is that you can see their struggles you can feel for their struggles. You don't necessarily just write them off as bad. And I think with that, you know, we've talked a little bit about Star Wars, but then I also want to bring up Star Trek. You know, you think about Khan, who, you know, sort of has this like hardwired nature of like, you know, I am superior and I am going to control everything because I can control everything. But then if you think about the way that character is portrayed and the way that he's written, he was also created to be that way. So I think there's some sympathy created there by the fact that to a certain extent, he is just enacting his directive. He's doing what he was programmed to do. So I think if you can create a villain that you can relate to or sympathize with or feel for in some way, that to me ultimately is more important than the arc, though the arc can sometimes achieve that sympathy. In terms of a villain you can feel bad for, I'll go back to a villain I mentioned earlier, Magneto. And another series that we haven't talked about much in this podcast, which doesn't surprise me at all, is Indiana Jones, because they've never had much success with any villains. But I do think there's a line in Raiders of the Lost Ark that elucidates what a good villain can be. This, this mirror image that we've talked about, Belloc calls himself a shadowy reflection of Indiana Jones, which in fact he's not, but maybe in archaeological philosophy, but Magneto is that shadowy reflection of Professor X. I mean, these guys are friends. They call each other by their first name. They play chess together. They have these deep intellectual conversations, and Magneto's plight for the rights of mutants and the serious danger that he not just that he perceives that it that exists from human governments make him incredibly sympathetic and not to mention that he's just a cool guy like that's what i love about magneto so much like it it doesn't surprise me at all how people who think mutants are superior would flock to him but also people who who are just like man this is just a really cool guy he's got it going on i want to be on his side 
don't you mean, don't they call him Belosh? Just a little Indiana Jones humor. But Josh, you, you bring up Magneto when we've touched on a, a couple of different villains already in this conversation that have made me think of the two things as it relates specifically to movie villains that draw me to those particular villains time and time and time again. You said Magneto. You just want to hang out with him because he's a cool guy. How much does the design, I'm talking about the physical aesthetic of a character, particularly a villain. And when we're talking about the template through which villains are able to be created, it's so much broader than heroes, right? Heroes, we've got Indiana Jones and we've got James Bond and we've got Han Solo and we've got Luke Skywalker and they all kind of look alike. But within that universe, we've got Darth Vader and Boba Fett. And then, you know, we go into, somebody mentioned Khan. How about the look of Khan and the performance of Ricardo Montalban. So you've got the aesthetic look coupled with a dynamic acting performance. Magneto's the same way, whether it's Sir Ian McKellen or Michael Fassbender. When you look on the Star Wars side, we were just discussing Kylo Ren. So much of that character's brilliance is the gravitas and the performance of Adam Driver and the chemistry that he's able to create with Daisy Ridley and the character of Ray. So to me, I think about costume design, for lack of a better phrase, but really the look of a character. And I think that can also dovetail back into some of the animated characters that we were talking about, whether that's Joker or Mr. Freeze or Two-Face from Batman the Animated Series. Heck, let's go, let's go back, way back into our childhood. Destro and Cobra Commander and Megatron and Starscream and Soundwave. The bad guys always have the coolest looks. And so that's something I always come back to. And then particularly when you get into film and you can couple that with a great performance. We talked about Gila in the, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We, if you read that description on paper, you got to be thinking, my goodness, what in the world are we going for here? But Kate Blanchett embraces it and turns it into a really memorable performance. So I, I think for me, two of the things that, that I go to, the, perform, the on-screen performance, but then also just the physical look. Like, how cool is this bad guy? That physical look is is so important, Dan. And going along with that, I think, is this, like, way they carry themselves. I think of it as, like, believable confidence. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of villains who carry themselves as if they can rule the world, and you have to kind of look at them sideways, like, really? Like, I'm not, not exactly sure that I should be that scared of you. And and Khan was one, is one that I always put in that category. Another is Dr. No. I, I, I just think, like, Dr. No is just so cool, calm, and collected all the time, just projects this earnestness, but also um, this in-control attitude that he's got all the time. Dan, the other one that I wanted to talk about, just kind of piggybacking on what you had already talked about, we've already mentioned it briefly, but specifically the Heath Ledger version of the Joker, because you talked about the look, but also the way that he carries himself. And first talking about the way that the villain carries himself, you know, part of the reason that you you find yourself liking the Joker is especially in, in in that rendition of him. He's funny. He's legitimately amusing. At the same time, you have the look of it, and then you have the execution. You have Heath Ledger, who 
quite literally gave his life to that role. And I think you have potentially there one of the best examples of exactly what you were talking about, Dan. Heath Ledger's Joker is fantastic. As I sort of already gave away earlier, my favorite Joker is Mark Hamill's from the animated series. But I do want to give a bit of a shout out to Joaquin Phoenix's because I felt like it was closer to the animated series Joker. Something I felt while watching that movie was how much Joker embraced comedy. I, I know you, you, you said that Heath Ledger's Joker was funny, and he is, but the art of comedy, I don't feel like, was something that he was actually going for. But Joaquin Phoenix is, and Mark Hamill definitely is, that this idea that, he fi- that Joker finds a pie in the face to be just as funny as a bullet in the head, and he, just, he genuinely couldn't care less about which one it is. He will laugh at either. And the insanity of a villain that would equate those two things but that's who who this character was I, I kept thinking of this one i forget maybe it was christmas with the joker in the animated series where the there's this huge climax and this wild goose chase with batman and robin and the end of it is batman opening a christmas present and getting a pie in the face and joker just erupts laughing and it is just one of my favorite episodes of that. And it's like Joker, you know, he's going to get caught and go to Arkham at the end of this, but he doesn't care because he got to put a pie in the face of Batman. Yeah. And I think, you know, Josh, what you bring up just to kind of, you know, talk about the the humor. I, I think that you're right that Joaquin Phoenix's the Joker and then also Mark Hamill's kind of play up more that thin line between humor and insanity uh, where Heath Ledger's was much more going down the route of that dark humor that is still fun. I am with Josh. My favorite Joker is anytime Mark Hamill does an interpretation. That's between the animated series or even the, the video games in which his, his Joker is also quite amazingly sinister. Um, and that is Joker kind of is one that violates the principles we were talking about earlier with some villains about being relatable, about finding the humanity in it. The Joker is compelling, particularly because I think of how out there he is, that a pie in the face and death of, in any form are, the, are a shared ultimate punchline. And, and yet, I mean, to look at, I think the reason too Joker has, as a character, has been adapted so successfully in so many ways is because there are so many parts, there's so many aspects to what you can focus on um, from a Joker. I mean, you've, in, in Cesar Romero's 60s villain, you've got the, that pop art, you know, bubblegum, painted over mustache kind of pop art glee. With Jack Nicholson, you've got the gangster Joker. You've got the Joker as crime boss. Uh, with Heath Ledger's, you've got the, the punky anarchist. You know, he just wants to, watch, wants to watch the world burn and wants to tear down all the structures, you know, with it. With, I hate to say it, um, with Jared Leto's Suicide Squad Joker, you just have kind of a poser Joker, you know? I mean, he's the guy that has to run, that he needs the attention so badly he writes damage on his own forehead. And with Joaquin Phoenix, is you have the sad clown. You ha- and that, to bring up the comedy aspect, um, because Joker absolutely owes a huge debt to Martin Scorsese movies like Taxi Driver, but also The King of Comedy, in which uh, Robert De Niro plays sort of the opposite role to what he does in Joker. Joaquin Phoenix gives a really impressively controlled and unhinged performance. The movement uh, is really what struck me for Joaquin Phoenix and Joker, is the way he moved in those dancing sequences that kind of grotesque freedom that he was trying to physicalize that that was what really struck me in his in his bit in that i think that was something that we hadn't seen from a live action joker before i think it's interesting to think about all the tremendous performances associated with a character like the joker and maybe it's just because there's so much 
meat on that bone that it lends itself to all these phenomenal performances. And as you guys are talking about all these great Joker performances, I'm thinking about sort of the opposite end of that spectrum. And I think about a franchise like James Bond, which we all dearly love, but in 24 films has generated some memorable villains, but would we be comfortable saying more than some? You've got Goldfinger, you've got Oddjob, you've got Jaws, you've got Alec Trevelyan, you've got Silva. That right off the top, and we've got Dr. No. All right, so we got, I've just named six, but that includes a couple of henchmen, and there's 24 films so far. I think there's been some great performances. Josh, you mentioned Red Grant earlier in the podcast, but has James Bond kind of left us wanting a little more from its villains? Because for the most part, these are just crazy guys who are out to do bad stuff for money, and that leaves us like I said, wanting just a little bit more? I think it speaks to the different types of villains and the different categories that villains might fall into and to something that we talked about earlier, what different franchises might do better than other franchises. You know, we talked about how, you know, specifically with the Joker and with Batman, how you have like these singular villains and Batman potentially better than any other franchise that we're going to talk about may have done that better than any other ones. You know, Star Trek, we talked about how they kind of did well with the collective villains. I might argue that James Bond may have done a better job with the henchman villain than any other type of villain. Dan, you listed Ajab as being one of those. But then I also think about Jaws and Red Grant, I think also kind of falls under a, you know, he's a henchman on steroids maybe, but he's still maybe in that henchman role. Ultimately, Dan, I do think I agree with you that it does leave us James Bond leaves us wondering in terms of those singular villains, they give us all of these other henchmen-like villains that are really, really engaging. Yeah, I think where, where James Bond was sort of saved in their, in their villains is that every time you kind of thought they had run out of gas in terms of a good villain, they came back with another one. You had the classic ones in the beginning, and then they got pretty dull towards the end of the Conneries, and then... Jaws and then there's another bit of a lag and then we get Alec Trevelyan and then there's another bit of a lag and then we get Raul Silva so I think they've had these good villains spaced out just far enough that it's kept the franchise going kept the villain reputation in this franchise going in talking about the the henchmen's too one other one that I just wanted to mention not in the James Bond realm but more in the Star Wars realm, you have Boba Fett, who, Dan, going back to your point about aesthetics, is there a cooler looking villain than Boba Fett? I'm pretty sure that's the case. And I think that's part of the reason that you have a series like The Mandalorian built almost purely off of just the cool, how cool that character looks. But then in terms of that also, it also makes me think about part of what makes Boba Fett cool is this idea of his mask. And that makes me think more about villains in general. And, you know, one of the things that I find engaging about villains are their masks. And it makes me, makes me wonder if part of why we find them engaging is this idea like the mask covers up humanity, whether it's Joker's makeup, covering up his humanity. There's a sense that like all we need to do is cover our face up or cover our humanity up just a little bit and then it allows us to do all of these things that are that are immoral but but we also tend to think they're cool we think these characters are cool for some reason and that might be something of significance 
one villain from a series that we haven't talked about at all on this podcast and, and very little since the inception of Dorkfest, the podcast, one villain who wore a helmet very briefly at the very beginning when you were introduced to this character and then becomes nothing more than a floating flaming eye in the sky is Sauron from Lord of the Rings. And Gabe, this is where I want to set it up to you because I know this is a franchise near and dear to your heart. I think Sauron is a great all-time villain, but he has to inhabit others. His villainry travels through the ring, so it's very disconnected. Does it help that we see them as see him as this big bad in the prologue of Fellowship? that sort of sets the stage for what a bad dude this guy can be. I mean, I guess, Gabe, do you agree that Sauron is an all-time movie villain? I think I would be excommunicated from my family if I didn't agree, but luckily I do agree that Sauron is, Sauron definitely deserves to be in the conversation, and speaking of henchmen, so does his lackey Saruman, but Sauron deserves to be in the conversation because he is something that we haven't really spoken much about in our discussion of relatable characters and, and you know, what makes somebody interesting as a, as a villain and all that. Sauron is effectively pure evil. He, you know, you might as well be fighting the devil, you know, it is, and in, you know, the cosmology of Tolkien's Middle Earth, he does kind of fall somewhere in the demon. Uh, it, that's, it's analogous to what he would be in, in the hierarchy of the world Tolkien set up. And yeah, no, I think it, there's something more to explore there, Dan, and the fact that for the bad guys, because everybody, you know, Sauron's chiefest weapon is this little piece of himself, this ring, this thing that is carried around and trying to be hidden, and it will make him complete. It infects everybody else, everybody that bears it, everybody that's around it. Um, and maybe what's compelling there is it speaks to everybody's capacity. I mean, if we're talking, Boromir is not an out-and-out villain, but he's an antagonist for Frodo, for sure. Um, and he's one of my favorite characters, I mean, in general, but certainly as played by Sean Bean in um, in The Fellowship of the Ring and and, and the subsequent uh, he cameos in the other two. And because he just puts so much, it's pride that's, you know, in a way his downfall. He wants so badly to do the right thing that he can't help but mess it up and ultimate, and pay the ultimate price in the end. And that's the tragedy of what, you know, what Sauron brings in is this ultimate evil and how it can affect even a good person. Gandalf himself refuses the ring. He says, I, I can't touch it. I would be I would wield this ring from a desire to do good, but through me, it would become too great and powerful, uh, too great a terror to imagine. Jordan, you made me think of something too. The point about masks made me think of an Oscar Wilde quote. He says, man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask and he will tell you the truth. And what that reveals, you know, the, the, the evildoers that have to wear masks, you wonder if that, for them, are they arguing, uh, you know, is that an ultimate expression of who they are or does that just allow them to not have to look at it, at, you know, face directly what it is they're doing. Just some primo dork discussion around the table here for us and our listeners to feast their ears on. I'm beaming with pride and I, I can see that we're all cackling and uh, putting our fingers together in evil ways on our own, on our own channels here. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Boy, it's, it's tough to dole out uh, the two points here for the two-point question. Um, there are a lot of great things brought up. Yeah, I could do the thing, I suppose, where I uh, just like roll a die and assign you each a number, but you can see me do that. So I'm actually going to have to choose based on merit. Jordy, I like a lot of what the research you put in here. You, you really came through, um, and I think you, you had a lot of great points bringing, uh, brought up here. I think you got to 
mostly I'm just trying to keep Josh from winning here, but that's uh, no, I, I think you seems to be the entire goal of this endeavor. Is and when you get to, to be the moderator, to, you to, can pull the points do in podcast form, what you've been unable to do in past dork fest competitions. Enjoy your moment guys. Gabe, th- Gabe, thanks so much. Um, I, I definitely feel like I did say smart things. So I'm glad that you noticed that I said smart things. Also, I'm glad that you, you know, realized that I was trying to, to mentally, you know, communicate that Oscar Wilde quote to you because uh, I couldn't remember it myself. I got you. I got you covered. And this brings us to our, our three-point question, our third, three-point third and final question, because this really is, I think, what we've been edging toward in our discussion of, you know, as we've been gushing over these villains, these, these phenomenal characters, uh, you know, whether good, evil, anti-heroic, or, uh, you know, a little bit of both. And we love these franchises for a lot of reasons. We touched on, you know, our heroes and all sorts of reasons to love him. But at the end of the day, does Batman succeed on the strength of his villains? Is it Darth Vader that makes Star Wars worth watching in a way? So is a franchise only as good as its villains? What say you, Josh? I'm going to say no. A franchise is not only as good as its villains, primarily because, as I mentioned, the villains in Indiana Jones, frankly, stink. And that is one of my favorite franchises. You know, the, the villain in, the, in that franchise is, is almost taken by the object that Indy is hunting. Like, that's the, the thing that, that's the conflict that needs to be resolved in, in, those, awesome. yeah. in those movies. But I will say with the slight caveat that I think, as I mentioned with James Bond, villains sustain a franchise. I mentioned Indiana Jones. There's only four of those movies. Uh, We've been promised a fifth for quite a while now. And, you know, if they had a a big bad to keep coming back to with an A-plus actor to play them who, uh, you know, really engaged with the audience, would we have gotten more of those movies? There's no shortage of Batman movies because there's no shortage of Batman villains. And I think the same can be said for for Marvel. Harry Potter, something that we haven't talked about at all, had the biggest bad in Voldemort, but lots of others along the way. And that that was able to sustain over seven books, eight movies. I think it's that villains sustain a franchise and keep it getting refreshed over time. That's a great point to think of it as villains sustaining a franchise. The thing, you know, the hero is going to be there. Presumably, they're always going to win the day. They're always going to need something to keep the story going. They always need something to struggle against, and the good ones uh, stick around. Jordy, any opinions on Josh? I want to piggyback um, and kind of reinforce some of the things that Josh talked about, but I'm going to talk about them in a slightly different way. Josh, I definitely I agree with this idea of the villain sustaining the franchise. I also think, you know, I thought about this question. The conclusion that I came to is that heroes define the franchise. Like, there's a reason that the James Bond franchise is the James Bond franchise. It is defined by the hero, but the villains are what enhance the franchise. And I think part of the reason or part of the way that they do that is by, in some ways, humanizing the heroes, by us being like a proxy to them, humanizing us as well. I think about the relationship between Khan and between Kirk, and the way that Khan's involvement with Kirk and sort of their repartee and their conflict serves to knock Kirk down a few notches and makes him not this this hero that we can hold up as perfection 
Um, I think you see something similar to, to in terms of what the Joker does with Batman. You know, you have these villains that are in some cases taking our heroes through these very human-like journeys. I, and I think another way that they do this is also through the presentation of the villains themselves. When I was watching or re-watching Avengers Endgame, I was struck by like the, the way that you first see Thanos is he's cooking dinner. And he, and he looks human and he looks weak. And you think, well, this is the same person that literally snapped everyone out of existence the last time that I saw this franchise. And yet now I see him hurting and I see him just, you know, living as I live. And, and I think that th that's one of the ways that the villains can really enhance the franchise. I do love that aspect of Avengers Endgame, Jordan, because you effectively get two different Thanoses in that movie. You get the one that we grew to know through Infinity War and who won and got what he wanted and then the end of him. And then you sort of get Thanos back in his prime when he's at basically his most dangerous right before he's about to, right before he's about to launch his crusade for the stones. So they get him at full strength then. It's an interesting to see the difference in ego between the two versions, even though they are the same character. I, I like your, uh, your thesis here too, of that heroes define the franchise and the villains enhance it. It's it, pointing my way toward one of my own that I'm going to pull out of my butt real quick, where our heroes are made better. They have to be tested by the villains. Marvel, I think, is a really interesting example, too, because while they haven't always scored with their villains, who as often as not run into the like the hero but evil thing like we talked about earlier, their heroes fight each other as often as not. They have a whole movie where you know, the two heroes, sides of heroes fighting each other are effectively each other's villains for a little while. And that's, uh, if we're talking about, you know, heroes making each other better, that's an interesting approach that I don't think we see somewhere else. So with someone like Batman, though, in contrast to Marvel Comics, who has probably the best rogues villain, uh, who has probably the best rogues gallery ever in terms of villains, the way the villains relate to him is also really interesting. A lot of his villains are based around phobias. You know, Scarecrow is literally based around fear. You know, you, uh, Two-Face can be schizophrenia you can read it as that you've got the shadow self with a villain called hush who's effectively a kind of uh, you know rich bruce wayne if he'd been pushed in the other way to go back to the warm-up question it's really fascinating the way villains can define not just the hero but you know the way these things linger with us um and i think maybe it does have to do in the way with how it tests the heroes how it tests the franchise and the way in which they develop in relation to each other i want to just go back to the, the original three-point question that was posed, is a franchise only as good as its villains? That was the question that was asked. And I think the short but complicated answer is yes. I think that it is. And I think we all have sort of been beaten around the bush to that exact point. Yes, these villains enhance these franchises. And yes, these villains tend to bring out the best in these franchise. But by the transitive property of A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. And I think, yes, these franchises are only as strong as their villains are. The best that James Bond ever gets is Goldfinger. And yes, in part because it has John Barry's Dawn Raid on Fort Knox, but also because of or Goldfinger and Odd Job. As good as Marvel has ever been, in my opinion, and I don't think I'm alone here, 
the original Avengers, which had Loki, Black Panther, which had Killmonger, and then Endgame and Infinity War, which was Thanos. You've got your alpha prime bad guy. Star Trek II is the best Star Trek movie, and it's Khan. The best that Star Wars has ever been is The Empire Strikes Back, and it's because Darth Vader wins. It's the episode we get to at the end, and we're like, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on here? Because this guy is such bad news, and now we find out that he's got familial ties to our hero. Yeah, I think these franchises are only as good as their villains. I think it's highlighted by the missteps that James Bond has had through the years. I think they have a number of memorable villains and some really neat designs on villains, but far too often, I think they fall into the trap of crazy guys who just want to do bad stuff for money, and that's dull, and I think that takes a nosedive. And Josh, to your point about Indiana Jones, I think that has the potential to be the lone exception because Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones is just so romantically perfect that it overcomes the lack of any villains. But to your point earlier, there've only been four movies in that franchise. As good as Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones has been, they got four movies out of that in 40 years. So that's not a terribly high hit rate. So I think long story long, yeah, the franchises are only as good as their villains. Yes, yeah, something that, that I just thought about is in relation to the, the Indiana Jones is uh, Jaws. Like, okay, like you can only have a killer shark be intimidating so many times. You know, Jaws could be considered a franchise and it's a movie that we love, they're, but they're, you know, three, four movies, but we only care about the first one because that's the one with where the shark is the best, where the shark is the best villain. And it's interesting too. That's an example of how a franchise really fails to make its villains relate to the family because don't they, by the end, tie, try to tie in some sort of like mystical family relationship between like a, a descendant of the shark and the Brody family. They're like tied together by Jaws four or something. You've like you've that. made it farther into the Jaws canon that th- yeah. than I have delved uh, have with that it. analysis, that Gabe. The, the dark but... day on Wikipedia. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> Boy, that's, uh, guys, there's some great stuff here, uh, from the three of you at least, and uh, a lot to think about in terms of where the points should go. I got to say, I'm kind of torn. At the end of the day, though, you were very close, Josh, because I liked your thesis about villain sustaining a franchise. You were... What what, what lunatic asylum did they get you out of? You were so excruciatingly close. And Dan, you brought us back with the... Bringing us back down to common, plain Hobbit sense down to brass tacks in trying to, you know, bring us back and answering the actual question. But I also like sort of trying to have it your own way. So Josh, you get the three points and I believe the podcast. Oh, upset alert. Yes. Uh, Out of nowhere. I thought thought for sure it was me. I thought it was going to be a two cousins, one destiny situation. It's not an upset when the guy who always wins, wins. It's only an upset when he thinks he's going to lose. He was really, yeah, he was was really, kept me me dangling there. Well, congratulations, Josh. Thank you. Thank you. It's only appropriate that the villain of Dorkfests wins the villain Dorkfest podcast. It does seem fitting now, doesn't it? Well, thank you all very much for showing up today and listening to us bandy about our uh, 
years of pent up opinions about uh, villains, you know, shapes, sizes, and uh, dark sides. And we hope again you stay safe, that you've enjoyed this for what it's been. And thanks again to each and every one of you for listening and tuning in. Please again uh, rate, review, and subscribe. Tune in next time for another episode of Dorkfest the Podcast. And uh, for now, we can leave you just with this. East, west, just points of the compass, each as stupid as the other. I'm a member of Spectre. Spectre? Spectre. Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, Extortion. The four great cornerstones of power headed by the greatest brains in the world. Correction. Criminal brains. A successful criminal brain is always superior. It has to be.